Welcome to this episode of Impact Education LLC's Payer Talk CE program entitled Improving the Utilization Management Process in Atopic Dermatitis. My name is Gary Owens, and I'm president of Gary Owens Associate, and I'm pleased to be joined today by Dana McCormick, a colleague uh, and longtime friend of mine who's director of pharmacy at Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. I've worked many years with Dana, and with that, Dana, welcome. Hey, thanks so much, Dr. Owen. I'm so excited to be talking with you this morning about atopic dermatitis. I think we're going to have a great conversation. Great. Thank you so much, Dana. Before we get started, I want to let the audience know this Pay or Talk CE program is jointly provided by the National Eczema Association, Partners for Advancing Clinical Education, and Impact Education LLC, and is designed for a half-contact hour of CE credit. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Sanofi and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals, and we'd like to thank them for their support. So, Dana... I'd like to start off by hearing a little bit about your current role. Thanks, Dr. Owens. In my role at Blue Cross, Blue Shield of Texas, I um, have a team of clinical account consultant pharmacists who really work a lot with our commercial clients, so employers who are purchasing healthcare. And our team is responsible really for being the quarterbacks around pharmacy, so things relating to clinical insights that they can provide to our clients. They help advise our clients about things they can do to continue to spend, make spend efficient for their pharmacy benefit, identifying different clinical programs that um, could be implemented to help manage appropriate spend. So our pharmacists really also do a lot of disease state education, helping our clients understand the overall impact of a disease on the total overall healthcare expense that they have. So they do spend a lot of time talking about disease states that maybe have high costs in certain areas like medications to help them understand like why it's important to continue to provide good benefit structures for those different uh, disease states. Dana, thank you for sharing that. And I share some of the common experiences with you. Uh, although I'm a physician by background, I was the officer responsible for developing and implementing our PBM back in my payer days. I was the officer responsible for operating that PBM and also chaired a P&T committee and even later worked with a major consulting organization on employee benefit structures. So I know some of the pain points that you go through. So last year, you talked and joined Payer Talk CE to discuss the known challenges with payer benefit management strategies for AD. And, and boy, it's evolved since then. We've seen in 2021, a new injectable come to market, two oral therapies come to market in 2022, and uh, just a robust pipeline in this area. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about what your organization might be doing differently than when you spoke last year. No, it, and you know, it still continues to be a challenge to develop uh, innovative ways to help support, you know, getting the right patient to the right medication at the right time. I think we use that talking point a lot um, as we think about how we continue to develop strategies. You know, because employers are the ones that are purchasing and providing healthcare for their employees and dependents. They are not the experts, right? So they are looking a lot of times to the payers that they're working with and consultants on 
how they can, you know, develop benefits that create the right access for their members. So I really do feel like our role is to help advise them on how they can structure benefits so that patients have access to medications. And one of the things that has been a pretty significant issue that's come up over the past several years is, you know, with deductibles and co-pays trying to keep up with the cost of medications, um, sometimes those benefit designs can be set up so that there is a barrier from a cost perspective for patients. So if you think about Dr. Owen's like high deductible health plans and the cost share that members, you know, take on before their coverage, you know, begins. So I think the more we can help advise our clients about how they can structure their benefits considering so many therapies that are coming out are high cost in our specialty and bringing to patients like much better treatment options that are helping them reach, you know, goals of therapy that haven't been possible before and in a much more efficient and, you know, safe way. So I think one of the roles we play and continue to, again, have challenges with is helping our clients understand how to set benefits up so that, you know, their members are getting access to medications in a timely manner that's helping, you know, improve the overall healthcare spend as well. You know, Dana, I, I totally agree with you. Employers in the U.S. bear the big bulk of the healthcare cost, and especially those self-funded employers who ultimately are directly responsible for that cost of care. And it is a challenge to help them, number one, understand disease states, especially dermatologic conditions, AD being one of them. We don't tend to, and employers who are not medically sophisticated often don't tend to think about the potential severity of diseases like that, and sometimes even the comorbidities associated with those diseases. And I agree, it's it's the role of people like you and the, the things that payers do to help inform them. And at the same time, hitting that really, really fine balance point between good access to needed medications and being fiscally responsible at the same time. And sometimes that is a very difficult chore to handle. Employers need to be able to afford healthcare for their employees. And at the same time, employees need to be able to have access without a pocket costs that aren't going to drive them literally into bankruptcy or, or avoid treatment. So I really agree and share your concerns there. And then I think too, as one of the things that we're always looking for is how can we continue to create utilization management processes that decrease the administrative burden and decrease the time to get those programs reviewed and approved and get the right information. So I think we're continuing to find ways that we can use, you know, electronic mediums as ways to increase efficiency and decrease like the time to approval, because we know there is a cost that's associated with delay in treatment that occurs as well. So I think, you know, one of the things that we'll struggle with though still is, you know, there are some enhancements and advances that you know, electronic health records and different ways that we can manage things, you know, through online forms and tools and resources like that, that some of the things that still will be a little bit of, of a barrier is, you know, how you define severity. So you have a drug that's indicated for moderate to severe, how can you decrease the barrier and the administrative burden on identifying how a patient is diagnosed as, say, moderate or severe versus, you know, not moderate and severe. So 
I think trying to figure out ways that we can develop policies. And and that's the hard thing too, right? Is like you're working on developing a policy that's intended for a large population, but we all know that there needs to be, you know, the ability for a customized approach based on the patient characteristics and the things that are going to be important for them to be successful, you know, to reach treatment outcomes based on kind of the patient specific characteristics. So again, that part will be a little more difficult. But again, I think there I'm seeing and hearing a lot more discussion about how can we use, you know, medical diagnosis data in the pharmacy claim systems? How can we continue to, you know, decrease that administrative burden as well? And Dana, thanks for sharing that. And one of the areas I often engage in is talking to physicians uh, and former colleagues about some of their frustrations. And the prior us are, I will admit, one of their big frustrations, simply because the volume and number of them has increased and it's taking more and more of their administrative time. At the same time, they do recognize that the high cost of therapies these days is something that we have to pay attention to. So it really is a, a fine balance point. And we definitely don't want to create points of frustration. At the same time, we still have to be fiscally responsible to our customers and try to keep healthcare as affordable. And then the last point, I think you raised a great one, is when you're doing payer management policies, you're managing for populations. So you have to make those policies generalizable enough to a population. When physicians are managing patients, they're managing them one at a time, and not every patient fits neatly into that population. So your your talk about having exceptions and exception pathways is, is also an important one. Yes, and then also thinking about the you know exceptions, you know, a lot of the way clinical trials are designed don't necessarily take into account every single kind of patient, right, and what would be needed for every single patient type. So the, as plans, as we are developing those criteria, as you know, and have worked through, they do have to be backed up by some kind of evidence-based guideline support. So when we have drugs that are coming out and again, they're clinical, you know, the clinical trials are developed in a very specific way to reach a specific outcome, being able to have some kind of evidence base to back up your, you know, clinical management approach is really needed. So if we think about, you know, a lot of trials are not conducted in pediatric patients, for example, and, you know, making sure that we're making policy decisions that are allowing access for the appropriate patients and pediatric patients, I think is one that's a very underserved group, especially in this disease state as we think about, you know, the impact that atopic dermatitis and eczema has on that patient population. But again, having, you know, the flexibility and some kind of data to help support being able to make those approvals. So again, I think, um, especially when a, a new drug, a new modality comes out, there tends to be more of an approach to stick to the actual clinical trial utilization requirements But then as we have more of those agents out and they're used more over time and there's more real world evidence being generated around the use in different patient populations, making sure that, you know, plans are expanding criteria to cover those patient types, even if it is not actually in the product's um, indication. So again, that's another way we can continue to help make sure that we are, you know, providing the right access to patients. 
Great, Dana. We've certainly identified a number of challenges here, and you've even started to touch on how we're potentially going to address these challenges. So let's explore a little bit more how we can best create those benefits. And in particular, what are some of the opportunities for things like payers and providers and, and even advocacy groups to, to get engaged in this process? Oh, I definitely think there's a huge opportunity because if you think about, you know, as the payers are developing, you know, their criteria and their clinical program approach, they certainly are reaching out, especially to specialists in those areas to talk about and think about, you know, how, how should the appropriate, you know, pathways be set up. So while I know that is happening and we do that on a regular basis and certainly use our internal clinicians who may have, you know, practiced in that area or had experience, I think there's a greater opportunity for plans to have those discussions. Because if you think about, you know, like just thinking about this whole thing about how can you measure um, or how do you define moderate to severe? And again, like working with the treating clinicians about how are they identifying that in their practices, you know, some of the tools that are used in clinical trials may not necessarily be what's used in actual day-to-day practice. Um, so really relying on, you know, your in this in this specific disease state, really relying on your dermatology um, specialists and subspecialists to help inform the appropriate ways. And, and like, what are things that, you know, some of the great feedback too is, you know, we may decide something's important to gather as it relates to um, an approval and the treating clinicians may just, you know, may not ever be looking at that. And so things like that are important to know. And then also developing, like really working on a way to, you know, if easy scores and IGAs aren't what's used in normal practice. And if you think about, you know, Dr. Owens, like in this, in this area, specifically the lack of access to dermatologists and subspecialists is pretty significant in this space. So how can, can we provide a pathway that identifies moderate to severe, you know, to be more easily identified with less, you know, administrative burden as well? Yeah, it makes a great point about identifying uh, disease severity. Unfortunately, patients don't come with little labels on their forehead. My disease is severe today. And clinicians basically don't use most of the scales that are seen in clinical research, primarily because you have to have those scales uh, to satisfy objective measurements for FDA approval. But clinicians often work on uh, on the principle of clinical dissolve. How do you feel today? How's your itching? What's your skin look like? Are you having any flares? Those kinds of things. And, and that leads me right into talk a little bit about guidelines because guidelines are out there to help clinicians. The American Academy of Dermatology is in the process of updating theirs. They're a bit out of date last updated in 2014. And in 2014, we really had no injectable therapies for atopic dermatitis and and none of the things like JAK inhibitors or anti-PDEs, that that sort of thing. So there's also the role of guidelines that need to be updated. And hopefully that, and again, as we think about how plans, they, you know, they do need to have evidence-based, you know, peer-reviewed literature to support their clinical approaches that they're putting into place. So 
as we see like such innovation in a specific disease state, like we've seen in atopic dermatitis, as you were mentioning earlier, Dr. Owens, I think that the quicker we can have those kinds of groups like the American Association of Dermatology update their criteria, because one of the things that'll happen is, you know, again, back in, you know, if we're looking at 10 years ago without a lot of the newer, more effective and safer agents that have come out, we still have in guidelines things that may not be as effective and or not as safe. And so one of the really important things will be to, as the evidence-based guidelines do, is they will take that into account so that positioning, you know, safer, more effective agents earlier in treatment, hopefully will come out of that. And, And as that happens, you know, payers will be updating their guidelines to, you know, match the most recognized specialty association guidelines as well. Yeah, you bring up one point I always like to emphasize, and you talk guidelines being evidence-based, and that's so important and actually even to have grades of evidence. You know, classic example of that, of course, is the NCCN guidelines in cancer, where they grade the level of evidence and some of the guidelines in cardiology and diabetes do that because payers, as you pointed out, do work off of the evidence and that's how we develop our policies. What do you think we could do better to work together with clinicians and patients and employers and as payers? I mean, we're all stakeholders in this. What can we do better? I think one of the things we can do better is just have more communication for sure. So again, having intentional processes set up to incorporate feedback from each of the stakeholder groups when clinical guidelines are being developed, when formulary decisions are being made. So again, having that formal pathway that's intentional and as a, I'll just say like as a requirement of a policy being developed that, you know, you are reaching out to specialists in your, you know, in your network, you're reaching out to patient advocacy groups who may have an interest in that specific disease state. So making it intentional and not just happenstance will be very important. I do know like we often will get um, feedback from our physician community and from patient advocacy groups. And again, as we get that feedback, we always take that to the clinical teams for evaluation and consideration But again, it just, as it comes in, as there's like a lot of times, as there's an issue, someone may reach out to talk about something. So I feel like it could be a lot more intentional and structured to collect that information and feedback. Yeah, that feedback is vitally important. Yet at times, and I remember in my days, it was more ad hoc rather than any formal structure. So you actually had the privilege of discussing UN in atopic dermatitis previously on payer talk CE. And you mentioned you were excited about how things were evolving and help patients to get access to atopic dermatitis treatments, uh, balancing that access with cost responsibility and not creating too many barriers to care. How's your perspective shifted since then? And is there anything you're excited to see get prioritized moving into 2024? No, definitely. So I feel like there has been um, a lot of movement because there has been a lot of discussion about how, you know, among the the managed care pharmacy community about how can we continue to increase, you know, access and decrease barriers. 
So some of the things like, for example, in a lot of disease states, thinking about how we continue therapy for patients who have been approved. And so, you know, making that process less cumbersome. So allowing physicians to do things like just provide an attestation for continuation of coverage versus, you know, chart notes, for example, which definitely is a, a higher burden. Also for transition of care for patients that are moving from plan to plan and they're already on, you know, like they're already stable and have good outcomes from a current therapy and treatment, allowing that patient to be maintained on that therapy and also allowing for that. I think a lot of plans now are considering previous prior authorizations that have occurred with another carrier and continuing on those authorizations when they come to a new plan, for example, allowing for more peer-to-peer reviews and creating a way. I, I know the peer-to-peer discussions are hard to schedule. It's hard to staff that. So I think plans are trying to make that process a little bit Uh, easier and more efficient as well. So I think there are a lot of things that we can look forward to 2024. Again, just really trying to help improve the patient and the member experience as it relates to, you know, getting approvals done in a more timely way. And certainly as one who has done many of those peer-to-peer conversations, I understand the value of them, especially if the clinician is willing to provide the additional information that may point out why the particular case we're talking about is an exception to the rule of those population-generated policies. So that's all important stuff. And I think as we come down the home stretch here in our comments, uh, I also want to say things are even going to get more complicated. Probably within the next couple of years, we're going to have at least one or two more oral therapies, probably two more injectable therapies, and maybe even a handful of topical therapies for that more moderate disease states. So Dana, I don't envy you your job managing the pharmacy benefit as this area gets more complex. So I'll ask you, what are some of your final thoughts? What are those things you think are are most important as we move ahead in the management of atopic dermatitis? I think especially as we think about atopic dermatitis, I think really not just thinking about, you know, the actual impact of the disease itself on the patient but taking those other kinds of factors like how it's impacting the rest of their life, how it's impacting their ability to go to work, or if they're a caregiver, how it impacts the caregiver plus the patient who is uh, needing that additional support. I think one of the things that as we continue to get more data around that, so one of the things that you know a lot of patient advocacy organizations do is collect information, you know, on their specific area of interest on, you know, what are other things that are happening to patients and like documenting that and putting some financial numbers around that to help give a better, broader understanding of how the disease is impacting, not just the patient, but the over, you know, like society overall, if you will. So again, I think the more we can bring that into the discussion and work with those organizations that are focused on collecting that kind of insights, the better we can be at helping our employers understand the needs on how they can better, you know, set up benefit designs and create access to medications in an appropriate way. 
And so, um, again, the other thing too, is as we continue to, I'm so excited all the time about different real world evidence data that's coming out. I'm so excited that there's a focus on that now, because again, it's so important for us to develop more customized approaches to different patient populations that maybe weren't included in clinical trial studies for various reasons. So I'm excited about the opportunity for studies to come out that can help inform our processes and make our approach more customized based on patient-specific demographics. And you know, Dana, it is in in the end about the patient. Ultimately, they are the recipients of of the care that they need and are needed to treat their uh, conditions. I, I had the privilege of hearing a bit of a testimony by a mother of two young children with atopic dermatitis. And really, until you hear something like that and some of the struggles of getting them to school, getting them to the dermatologist, using their medications and so forth, it it really is a challenge and it's always a balance point. Well, thank thank you, you, Dana, for sharing your thoughts today on how we can improve the quality of care for patients with AD. It's really been a pleasure working with you and chatting with you today about this issue. Importantly, I want to thank Sanofi and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals for their support of this educational activity. For logistical and technical questions regarding claiming credit and other issues, please email impacteducation at info at impactedu.net. And with that, thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of your day. 